you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to be with you on this Friday as we get rain in much of Southern California with another uh, bout of rain coming up later this weekend. We hope you're having a good start to your day and have a very nice weekend planned. On Film Week next hour, we're going to do what we can to help you have an even better weekend. We've got a number of new films of note, including the latest version of Lady Chatterley's Lover, Emma Corrin stars, and Emma is interviewed by our John Horn on Film Week as well. That's coming up on on Film Week uh, later today. Also, the Eternal Daughter from Joanna Hogg, the writer-director who does um, very stylistic kinds of work and and uh, takes real risks with the kinds of films that she makes. Tilda Swinton plays a dual role in The Eternal Daughter. We'll hear about that. And a documentary about composer Charles Fox, who not only wrote the hit song for Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly, and for Jim Croce, I Got a Name, but also did the themes of TV shows Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, The Love Boat, and Wonder Woman. A new documentary profiles Fox's career. That's coming up on Film Week with our critics next hour here on KPECC. But it's the position that just about anybody in local politics would aspire to, being a member of the five-person L.A. County Board of Supervisors. A tremendous amount of power and um, huge budgets to deal with enormous challenges that the county faces. The newest member of the Board of Supervisors taking office early next week, a former West Hollywood Council member, Lindsay Horvath, who joins us this morning to talk about some of her priorities once she's sworn into office on Monday. Supervisor-elect Horvath, thank you so much for being with us today on Air Talk. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to speak with you, Larry. First of all, just your thoughts about taking on District 3, this enormous um, population, all the needs that are involved, a district that sprawls from Venice North to the Ventura County line across the San Fernando Valley, through the west side of L.A., all the way to Hollywood. I mean, it's a mammoth district, as all five of them are. But uh, what does this mean for you to take this position on? Well, it's incredibly humbling and exciting. I feel a whole range of emotions. I was in love with this district before uh, we started our campaign, and I'm, uh, you know, just even more madly in love with it after meeting so many people who really bring to life what is rich and vibrant and uh, diverse and exciting about this district. Um, And so there's a lot of work to be done. This is a very difficult time for many people, obviously coming out of uh, a COVID emergency, um, you know, trying to move through what has been an economic crisis and and so many other issues. Um, But I know that we will be able to get 
into these uh, issues and solve them by working together. What does it mean also to be uh, one of uh, a five-member women's board? It keeps the all-women board of supervisors. What, what does that mean to you? Well, it's uh, exciting to make history as uh, the youngest woman ever elected to the board and to serve with all women on this board in this incredible time of change. Um, I think that uh, it's clear we saw in Los Angeles, we now elected the first female mayor. And uh, so I I think voters are really excited about women in leadership. They're looking for different answers, different solutions to the problems that we are facing. And we're ready to step up and deliver. You follow Sheila Kuehl, who's had a very long career in elective office in the state legislature and as L.A. County supervisor uh, and has been a real uh, lion of the left. I think it's fair to say a real progressive leader in state and in local government. So your thoughts about um, whether you see yourself as as sort of part of a lineage here or as as distinctly different from what Sheila Kuehl accomplished in this office? There is one, only one, Sheila Kuehl, and she is an icon. She has been fearless and heart-centered, knowledgeable, and uh, so accomplished in her uh, many different uh, roles and all of her work and leadership that uh, she has offered in her time in public service. And there are many projects, there are many issues that I intend to uh, continue. Um, Her fight to protect the environment, to uplift women and LGBT people, um, to make sure that our most marginalized are centered in the work of government. Um, There's a lot that she has done that that I'm excited to learn from and continue. Um, But I also know that um, I bring a a little bit of a different perspective uh, coming in as a millennial, as a renter, uh, with a little bit different life experience. I think that's also important on this board. And so thinking about um, some of those 21st century problems that we're facing, um, our generation uh, is looking at them a little bit differently. And so um, I will be bringing a different perspective on some of the issues that we will face. Um, but there are uh, so many issues that have um, been signature to the uh, to the third district. And so I'm looking to both uh, Supervisor Kuhl, former Supervisor Zavieroslavsky, and uh, so many community leaders in working on those issues. It's quite a history of representatives of that that district. Absolutely. You mentioned Zev as well. Um, let's let's talk a bit about um, the challenge of of the tremendous extremes of your district. And to some extent, this is true to varying degrees of all the districts. It's the Southern California story of the extremely wealthy and those who are just struggling to get by day day by day. So you've got this coastal northwestern L.A. County swath of the very wealthiest people, and you've also got people that are struggling in homelessness and working class people working multiple jobs to get by. How, how do you as a supervisor bridge that tremendous economic difference? Well, I'm going to approach uh, that divide as I've approached all the divides that I've encountered uh, through my time in local government and in regional and um, 
and other levels of service, um, my record has shown that we bring people together. We build bridges and we build diverse coalitions um, of different perspectives. And that's how we effectively tackle uh, our most challenging problems. Having those different perspectives to inform how we move forward will make sure that we bring everyone with us as we move forward. And so um, there, you know, there's no doubt that many of these problems will be very difficult um, as we as we move forward. Um, but I know that, uh, as I said earlier, we will get through them by working together. And um, I'm excited to learn from the people in the district more about their neighborhoods. I think that's what people are really excited about is someone who is going to work with them, meet them where they are and make sure the services of the county are actually reaching them in their neighborhoods. We're talking with the incoming third district L.A. County Supervisor, Lindsay Horvath. She had been council member in Santa Monica, I'm sorry, in West Hollywood, had been mayor of West Hollywood as well. And we're talking with her about the challenges she undertakes in this new role when she's sworn in on Monday. Uh, Let's talk about the potential for expansion of the board. Only five members, so each of them with just massive numbers of constituents to serve. Would you support expanding the board, allowing additional seats so that constituents can be closer to their elected representative? Absolutely. This is something I've supported um, as we've been having this conversation on the campaign trail. Uh, This is uh, it's clear that the redistricting process is intended to make sure that we have the opportunity for uh, diverse representation that is reflective of the county. Uh, But with only five seats representing more than 10 million people, um, there's certainly opportunity for more and diverse representation at the county board. And so I would absolutely be supportive of expanding the number. Do you have a number in mind? And is this something you'll actively work toward once you take office? Well, I I think there's an opportunity. As I've studied the history of the board, there was even a period of time uh, in the past where there were seven supervisors on the board. Um, Even if we doubled it to nine or 11, I think um, there's each of those districts would still have uh, a sizable uh, amount of people and uh, diverse regions to serve. Um, They would uh, be closer to the size of a state Senate district um, if we got to that size. And so um, we'll, we'll take a look at what those options look like, but um, it's clear that more representatives on the Board of Supervisors would mean more voices in the conversation, more opportunities for diverse perspectives, and I'm supportive of that. And and what's your plan for trying to make that happen? Do you have specific timeline or ideas for pushing that forward? Well, we're going we're going to work with the community to make sure that we uh, that our vision aligns with what us what. Uh, voters and residents of the district are are looking at in terms of how we improve representation and services. Um, so we don't have uh, a hard and fast timeline on that, but it's really about uh, building. Um, it's really about making sure that we connect with the community. And as we transition into office, um, we're building our team. So this will be a priority for our team. You mentioned that you're the youngest woman to be elected to the Board of Supervisors at 40. You're a millennial and you said you're the only renter. Now you're going to be able to afford to to buy a house given the salary that supervisors get. Um, What sorts of things can a supervisor in your position do given this housing market to make homeownership more reachable for more LA County residents. 
Well, I want to start with something that you said, you know, the salaries of the county supervisors are are barely close to what um, what the LA Times just reported as the the salary that you need to be able to afford to buy a home. But that doesn't account for the down payment that you have to make. Um, That doesn't account for my generation and many generations after me, the amount of college debt we've incurred uh, to be able to um, have the opportunities in life that we've seen. Um, If I hadn't gone to college, I wouldn't have had these opportunities, but that came with a significant amount of debt, which I'm still paying. And I know that many in my generation are are in the same exact boat. So it's not just about the salaries. It's about how we get ourselves out of this debt um, across the country. And I know that the Biden administration has taken a look at that. Um, But we have to make sure that we're looking at all aspects of of quality of life and affordability. It's not just about home ownership. It's how do we afford um, the daily costs of life. And so um, there's a lot that will go into that. We're talking with Lindsay Horvath, Supervisor-Elect L.A. County's 3rd District. Homelessness, of course, the biggest issue that you're going to be hearing from your constituents on day to day. And you've got areas where this has really been ground zero for dispute, Venice being a prime example of that, areas of Hollywood, for example. So I, I wonder, you know, given the shortage of mental health workers and that being a central part of the county's effort to try and address the needs of those living on the streets. What is your approach going to be to try and 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 bring those services to the people that are in need and to move people off the streets into supportive housing? Well, it's clear that LASA has to be changed. The work that they're doing um, has to be improved, and we need to make sure that they are more efficient and effective in delivering the services that people expect. I uh, intend to work with uh, Mayor Bass uh, once she is sworn in. I know she has a clear vision of how she wants to work on these issues for the city of Los Angeles, and we've spoken on the campaign trail about how we will work together hand in glove, city and county, to address these issues. And I think that's um, that's the biggest uh, bridge we need to build. All right. And and uh, let's talk a bit about um, when it comes to, to homelessness, um, coordinating those services. And, and you've got the city of Los Angeles, of course, trying to build units of housing, the county responsible for the services provided to people. In what ways specifically would those services and and housing itself be better coordinated? Well, I I have experience working in my own community of West Hollywood, delivering um, about an 80% success rate year after year, getting people off the streets and into housing services or both. And that has happened through a a very... um, concerted effort to bring services directly to people on the streets, to uh, directly engage with them on a regular basis, and make sure that uh, they are uh, connected with the services uh, that they are in most need of. It's not just about giving somebody a pamphlet of information. Um, In my community, we actually have caseworkers who go out every day of the week, meet people on the streets, and they actually coordinate cross-jurisdictionally. Right now, that isn't uh, exactly happening in the county, and that's caused caused some people to be contacted multiple times by different departments um, and not actually getting them off the streets. We need to make sure that we are working um, across jurisdictions and getting people the help and care that they need to get them off the streets and, and be supported.
Final question. Um, Supervisors, of course, with a major role on Metro's board. What would you like to see Metro do going forward, either on the issue of fares or or projects to which Metro is committing itself? What sorts of changes would you want to see the agency undertake? And we have to build. Um, we made promises and measures R and M that the people passed um, to tax themselves to put money into the system. We actually have to build the alignments that people were asking for to get people um, through moving throughout the region, to get people out of their cars one by one on our streets and highways, uh, which will not only improve uh, traffic and our daily commutes, but it will also improve the quality of our environment because CO two emissions from cars are the largest part of of, um, the, the contributing factor to CO2 emissions. We have to make sure that we are um, getting people into uh, transit lines that are safe and get them to the places where they most need to go. And, you know, the Crenshaw Northern Extension of Metro Rail is something I've personally worked on. Um, when it's constructed, it will have the highest ridership of any light rail line in the country. The fact that we weren't going to talk about that until the 2040s, um, as it was originally proposed um, didn't make any sense to me. We have to be moving faster. We have to get these projects built, get people to work and and get people moving throughout this region. It's essential for our economy as well. Supervisor Electorvath, thank you so much for talking with us. Congratulations on taking on this extremely important position and responsibility starting uh, Monday with your swearing in. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for the opportunity. Lindsay Horvath, uh, Supervisor-Elect, L.A. County Board of Supervisors, 3rd District, taking office next week. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Coming up, we'll talk about what, for many, is the happiest time of the year, the year-end holidays, time for family and friend gatherings, even times for extra socializing at work. But not everybody's into it. Not everybody is so festive this time of year. We'll talk about some of the challenges of feeling down once the year-end holidays arrive. We'll have a, a psychologist with us to offer some tips, and we'll take your calls. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Are you someone who this time of year gets down a bit, either because of the weather, the shorter days, or just because of 
all the people engaging in festive behavior around you and you're just not into it. It's that time of year when expectations are high for celebrating with friends, family, co-workers. I'd like to hear from you if if it doesn't work that way for you. We're at 866-893-KPECC. And what are some of the ways that you attempt to or effectively cope with that if that's something you deal with? 866-893-KPECC. Or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name. Joining us from the University of Minnesota, Assistant Professor of Psychology, Sabine Schmid. Professor Schmid, thank you so much for joining us. Um, It might surprise people in other parts of the country that really have serious winter, that people in Southern California can deal with seasonal affective disorder or get down this time of year. But I guess it's it, it's all what you're used to, right? So how prevalent are, you know, this time of year, combining the weather, the shorter days, and the holiday season, or depression or anxiety this time of year? Well, hi. Thanks for having me, Larry. Um, I will, yes, I will absolutely say that uh, seasonal affective disorder can happen to you anywhere, um, in any um, zone, climate, or uh, geographical uh, latitude. So in general, in the U.S., the um, the rate of seasonal affective disorder is about 5% in adults. Um, and that ranges quite a bit uh, by location, though. You're absolutely right. At, um, so it happens more in the northern states, the further you are from the equator, so northern latitudes, in uh, New Hampshire and Alaska, um, it can be up to 10%. Uh, in, in Minnesota, where I am right now, it's uh, around 9%. In California, it, it really can range, uh, but it's towards the, the lower uh, end. Um, in Florida, is one of the lowest rates at 2%. Um, so in California, you, you're um, better than we are in Minnesota, but, um, you know, again, depending on where you are in the state and sometimes county, it, it really can um, be higher rates in, in your region as well. What, what goes on physically, if part of this is a physical process, that seems to fuel season, seasonal affective disorder? So, yes, it's an absolutely physical process. That is not to say that psychological factors don't play a role, but um, we do know that um, the brain chemical uh, serotonin plays a huge role in seasonal affective disorder. So let me first say that seasonal affective disorder is a true psychiatric disorder. It's a form of major depression um, and in, in that, it, it basically has a lot of the same feature as any other major depressive disorder, um, but with the uh, additional um, piece that the sunlight um, has a direct influence. So one of the things we, we know from research is that the duration of, of sunlight exposure uh, has an effect on on people, and basically the people who develop seasonal affective disorder don't adjust well to the season changes of daylight exposure. So they they have less serotonin as a result of that. Is is, and I would guess then people that are are more prone to depression in other parts of the year. This can be exacerbated during the winter. Yes, yes. Um, so. 
Um, you know, less serotonin, I would say that's probably an, uh, um, too much of an oversimplification, but yes, ab abnormal levels of serotonin, abnormal functioning of, of serotonin, as well as the, the brain hormone melatonin, which people may have heard of, that helps us sleep. Uh, there may be too much of that around in people with seasonal affective disorder. So they might get sleepy because it's getting dark out, even mm -hmm. though it's four or five o'clock. Um, yeah. And how uh, we're talking, by the way, with University of Minnesota Assistant Professor of Psychology, Sabina Schmidt, joining us to talk about seasonal affective disorder and and also, you know, some of the stress and depression that can also come around the holiday season as well. And and Professor Schmidt, I, I wonder if, um, you know, for for therapists who are working with people who are feeling distressed this time of year, can it sometimes be challenging to tease out? how much of this is related to the environment and how much of it is related to social expectations and what's happening with, with people around those who are feeling depressed. Yes, you are hitting on a very good point, which is that um, there are many factors and it is absolutely difficult to tease apart. The good news is we may not always have to tease apart where the source of the depression originally was um, because we can effectively treat this depression and other types of depression with various interventions that have been proven effective. Um, so, you know, it's we're all a biological uh, organism. And so in that way, it's all physical, it's all biology. And we do have psychological factors. We do think and we behave, we do things, we feel things. And so there are various access points in therapy and with medication management. So for seasonal affective disorder specifically, we do want to get to the source as much as possible of the problem, but um, we may not have to, uh, for example, figure out how much of it is the holidays versus um, the season versus, you know, that they've been depressed before. Um, we can, you know, if we see a seasonal pattern, then maybe one of the first things that uh, the physicians and the psychologists think about is a light box. So actually simulating daylight, um, but also therapy and also medications. I was going to ask you about light and how effective that is. Does that show strong results for people who are dealing with seasonal affective disorder? Yes, it's been shown effective, um, especially um, in immediately, like pretty short. Um, it, it doesn't take long. And so um, you want to be careful to talk to a professional about the light therapy um, because you want to uh, make sure that you have um, a light box or a device that was specifically de uh, developed for seasonal affective disorder. And that has um, strong enough um, light coming out, so 10,000 lux or more. You have to position it correctly. And, and so you have to sort of um, do this ideally under some supervision um, that uh, where people can help you figure out how much 
uh, exposure, like 20 minutes, 30, 40 minutes, how far away you sit from the light and so forth. But yes, it has been proven effective. It doesn't work for everyone, but it works definitely for some people. Is is seasonal affective disorder difficult to study because of its limited months of duration versus studying, studying depression overall? So there's a lot of um, uh, overlap, a lot of uh, uh, findings we have for depression, how depression develops, how it looks in the brain, how it's different from healthy people um, is, of course, um, similar. So we have we know a lot that we can use for seasonal affective depression that we, we know from general depression. And most of the treatments, a lot of the treatments uh, that are effective in, in, in major depression in general are effective for this seasonal type of depression. I would actually say that we have one big advantage in studying seasonal affective disorder, which is that it's um, periodic. It's It occurs annually around the same time of the year. So it's predictable. Um, that yearly pattern allows us to um, you know, basically get ready for the depression that might be happening. I, I work with a lot of depressed folks in, in my clinic and um, those who have a seasonal pattern, they know to get ready for this, um, this time of the year, hopefully earlier, like even around um, August, September, usually October, November, they know that they need to stay more active physically, make sure they get some daylight exposure and maybe have some therapy to help them uh, with, with uh, you know, staying on target with what's important to them and what works for them. We're talking with University of Minnesota Assistant Professor of Psychology, Sabina Schmidt. If you have questions for her about seasonal affective disorder or about generally um, feelings of, of sadness or, or being down this time of year, which can be, you know, particularly acute because if others around you are in a celebratory, upbeat mode, they're really enjoying the year-end holidays and and festivities around other people, and you just feel like um, you kind of want to uh, go off by yourself and not be a party of it, it can be tough to escape in, in our culture. What are some of the things that you do to deal with that if that's your experience? We're at 866 KPECC 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at kpecc.org please include your location and your first name professor specifically for those who feel overwhelmed by the holidays particularly the social uh, demands or expectations what advice do you have for people to, to help manage that it's a great question. Um, I think that the the first uh, advice I always have as a clinician is to try to understand what exactly works for you and, and basically what is a depressant and what is an antidepressant. And I don't mean medication, I mean um, also your environment and your activities. So learn about um, if you have seasonal affective de- depression, learn about that, learn about what lifts you up and what brings you down, and then prepare uh, for any triggers. You know, for some people, Thanksgiving is a trigger that uh, stresses them quite a bit. Uh, The holidays that are coming up are triggers because there are certain scripts and we are somehow, you know, supposed to behave in a certain way, be cheerful, as you said, 
and that works for some, it cheers them up, it doesn't work for others. And so depending on who you are, you might want to do more of it, less of it, or have some kind of um, limit setting and control. You know, let's say I visit Uncle X here for two hours and then I will leave and have something scheduled after. Generally, though, I, I can't overemphasize the importance of physical activity and, and also balanced nutrition to just stay more resilient, um, which helps us, you know, of, of course, stay more active. And that is generally a good antidepressant. Thank you so much, Professor, for being with us and sharing your expertise about how this time of year can be very difficult for people suffering, uh, you know, dealing with depression and suffering the social expectations that for them can be particularly uh, heavy weight to bear. Thank you for talking about this. Absolutely. We appreciate it. University of Minnesota, System Professor of Psychology, Sabina Schmidt, joining us on Air Talk. Just want to remind you that coming up at noon today, we're going to be hearing Imperfect Paradise, the Sheriff, Frank Stoltz, terrific podcast that he's done on the political rise and fall of outgoing Sheriff Alex Villanueva. The final episode is dropping. You're going to get a chance to hear Frank's terrific work coming up at noon today. And if you miss it at noon, it'll be on at 7 o'clock right here tonight on KPCC. Coming up, we'll talk about the future of the granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl game. And what's going to happen with the expansion of the college football playoff to 12 teams coming up in two years? It's Air Talk on KPCC. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. On Film Week in about 20 minutes, our critics review the latest film from writer-director Joanna Hogg, The Eternal Daughter, stars Tilda Swinton, always terrific actor, and two roles that Swinton plays in The Eternal Daughter. Lady Chatterley's Lover, a new romantic uh, drama that's streaming on Netflix, starring Emma Corrin, who guests with our John Horn. That's coming up on Film Week next hour, right here on KPCC. But we turn our attention now to another form of entertainment, collegiate sports. And the college football playoff organization announcing yesterday it's expanding from its 
current four-team format to 12 teams that will be qualifying for the college football playoffs coming up in two years. Now, the Rose Bowl was the final hurdle to establishing this system because uh, the Rose Bowl had to agree to rework the final two years of its deal and take part in the expansion. Joining us to talk about what that's going to mean for the Rose Bowl. Will the game still be on January 1st or every four years on January 2nd? Uh, Will there be any more matchups of Pac-12 and Big Ten teams? With us to talk about it, the mayor of the city of Pasadena, Victor Gordo, who also previously served as the president of the Rose Bowl Operating Company. Mayor Gordo, thank you very much for joining us again. So let's talk about what's going to be coming in two years for the Rose Bowl and then what we know about its future beyond that. Well, we're, we're excited about uh, joining uh, the new conference, uh, the, uh, the Big Ten. Uh, we think it will bring more exciting football to the Rose Bowl Stadium, uh, to Pasadena, um, and we believe that uh, it will also uh, serve as the, the Bowl's primary purpose in California as, as an economic engine, draw lots of tourists uh, with Michigan and Ohio State and some of those teams that travel very well come visit Pasadena and California. So that'll, that'll be, are you talking about the UCLA games when they entered the, the Big Ten? Okay. That's correct. Yeah. For the Rose Bowl game itself, though, I wonder about whether we're ever going to see any more of those traditional Pac-12, Big Ten matchups, or is the Rose Bowl for the foreseeable future going to end up being a quarterfinal or or other uh, playoff game every year instead? Well, the the deal that uh, the CFP and the Terminal Roses uh, are proposing and, and entering into is for the next two years, um, I'm sorry, starting 24-25, 25-26, the Rose Bowl game uh, will be played in Pasadena at the Rose Bowl Stadium. Uh, and uh, it will um, it will be a championship game, not the traditional Rose Bowl game matchup. And will it stay on the traditional New Year's Day date? It, it absolutely will. Uh, you have to keep in mind that the Terminal Roses in the city of Pasadena have an agreement in place called the Master License Agreement. And it essentially uh, dictates all of the uh, issues involving the, uh, the production of the parade, the Rose Bowl Stadium. Uh, and as a part of that deal, um, the Rose Bowl is defined as a football game that's played in the Rose Bowl Stadium uh, in the city of Pasadena on January 1st uh, or 2nd when the first falls on a Sunday. And that agreement goes through 2046. Okay, so does that mean that, let's say the Rose Bowl signs a contract with a college football playoff organization extending beyond the first two years of these expanded playoffs, would that essentially relegate the Rose Bowl to a quarterfinal game every year as as opposed to being able to do uh, one of the later round games in order to keep that January 1st or 2nd date? Well, <clears throat> that that would have to be determined, you know, we're informed that those discussions beyond 2026 uh, are not uh, are not uh, completed, and in fact uh, have yet begun. The discussions that uh, we have been monitoring involves the 24, 25, 25, 26 year. 
Those are the first two years of what will be expanded college football playoffs to 12 teams. Six bowls, including the Rose Bowl, will be the hosts for those games. The other bowl locations are the Cotton Bowl in uh, the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area, the Fiesta in uh, the Phoenix-Tempe area, uh, the Peach Bowl in Atlanta, the Orange Bowl, Miami, the Sugar Bowl, New Orleans, and of course the Rose Bowl here in Pasadena. And this season's national championship game will be in the Los Angeles area Monday night, January 9th, 2023 at SoFi Stadium in Englewood. So Southern California this year, this season, hosts the national championship game on January 9th. If you have questions about what this means for the future of the Rose Bowl, we're at 866-893-KPECC, or you can email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and first name. In addition to Mayor Gordo, we're joined by Antonio Morales, who is the USC beat reporter for The Athletic. Antonio, thank you for, for joining us again. So as you read this, does it appear to you that the traditional uh, Pac-12 Big Ten matchup in the Rose Bowl is is likely a done deal after two years? That's certainly fading away. I think this was all kind of signaled, and and the road was paved for this when USC and UCLA left the Pac-12 this summer. I think when people think of the Rose Bowl and the traditional matchups, they think of USC versus Ohio State, USC versus Michigan. Those teams are going to be playing each other on a more regular basis now. So I, I, I think that that standing and that tradition kind of faded away when, when those teams decided to do it. And I think the Rose Bowl kind of lost some ground um, in terms of their leverage uh, when that move was made. And um, especially when the 12-team playoff was decided upon, um, you certainly don't want to be left out of that. So does does it look to you as you look at where the schedule aligns for the series of playoff games that the Rose Bowl will likely be one of the earlier round games because of its insistence on being New Year's Day? Uh, definitely, I think uh, the insistence on that day, like you said, kind of puts them in a hole because um, – they want those game. They want that early game, and um, the, the season that is going to last longer now. It's probably going to go to January twentieth, um, or something along those lines. So I, I think um, that kind of puts the Rose Bowl into a box there in terms of um, which games they could actually host. And Mayor Gordo, why is New Year's Day so important a date for the for the Rose Bowl to be played on? First, I'd like to address Antonio's point. Um, we have to keep in mind that the you know it, it's not a zero sum game. You know, let's let's keep in mind that the Rose Bowl Stadium is separate and apart from the Rose Bowl game, um, and nothing prevents EFP, the city of Pasadena, and the Terminal Roses from hosting two games. Uh, in fact, I would like to encourage all of the parties to think that through. We've done it before. We posted a Rose Bowl game on New Year's Day with the tradition um, and the Pac-10, Pac-12 Pac- uh, uh, rivalry, and then hosted a, uh, a DCS game, you will recall, a championship game uh, four or five days later. Uh, and so uh, I would encourage CFT and, and 
all of the parties involved uh, to consider that option. It's pretty exciting when that happened. But, of course, there was no SoFi Stadium just a few miles away in Inglewood at that point. And now the Rose Bowl would be competing with SoFi or other similarly newer stadiums for that national championship game. And that do you think that the Rose Bowl would be considered for that? I absolutely do. Uh, you know, we we went through a renovation specifically for that purpose uh, before SoFi Stadium was completed so that we could compete. And there's no question that college football fans love the Rose Bowl Stadium, love the setting. Um, television audiences love the setting and love to tune in to a game at the Rose Bowl. Um, you know, we, there may be a new shiny toy in town, uh, but it doesn't come with the history, the lore, uh, and the tradition of the Rose Bowl. And, and the memories that so many people have attending games at the Rose Bowl Stadium. And I think that uh, that uh, tips the scales. It It is an incredible experience to sit in the Rose Bowl and, and watch one of those New Year's Day games. There's, just, there's really nothing like it in sports. I'd love to hear from college football fans what you think about this change, what it means for the Rose Bowl going forward. <clears throat> We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at AT comments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. I want to hear your thoughts about this change that's coming in two years for the Rose Bowl as it's part of the expanded 12-team college football playoff. The Rose Bowl attempting to keep all of its future games on New Year's Day, or if that falls on a Sunday, the day following, as will be the case coming up next month. 866-893-KPECC. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up, it's Film Week. Our critics will tell us about a whole slate of new films, including a documentary, Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power, which uh, takes us back to 1960, Lowndes County, Alabama, uh, smack between Birmingham and Selma in Alabama, 80% black population of that county, zero registered voters in 1960. So uh, an all-black political party known as the Black Panthers was created, different than the radical Black Panther group that was based in Oakland here in California. But this Black Panther party actually qualified and ran black candidates back in 1960 and had a huge political impact. Our critics will tell us about the documentary Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power that's coming up on Film Week here on KPCC in just a few minutes. Right now, we're talking about the future of the Rose Bowl game. Every New Year's Day, of course, or January 2nd, as is the case for this football season, uh, capacity crowd in um, the Arroyo of Pasadena uh, sees teams typically between the Pac-12 and the Big Ten go at it. 
Things are going to change significantly coming up in two years when the Rose Bowl joins with five other sites across the country uh, for a 12-team playoff starting in two seasons. With us is the mayor of Pasadena, Victor Gordo, and USC football beat reporter for The Athletic, Antonio Morales. Antonio how huge a change is this going to be, particularly for USC and UCLA as they get set after next season to join the Big Ten? Well, it's their goal is going to be to make the playoff. It's going to be a 12-team playoff. And uh, if they can get situated, if, if they're good enough to be ranked in the top 12 in a couple of years, then obviously they'll want to be situated in uh, the Rose Bowl, and that would be a great advantage for them. And uh, Obviously, it's a major shift because they've been on the Pac-12 side of this uh, arrangement for for so many years and for, for a century, basically. And now uh, they're kind of going to the other side of it. So maybe if you see a Rose Bowl, you'll see USC versus uh, maybe a, a Pac-12 school or a or a, a SEC school or something. And in a quarterfinal, you never know. So it's going to be a, a different changeup for them. You're, of course, preparing to cover tonight's Pac-12 championship game. It's in Las Vegas at Legion Stadium. The Trojans, who are fourth-ranked in the college football playoff, and if they're able to win tonight, would almost assuredly qualify for the current four-team playoff. They're playing the University of Utah, the only loss on the Trojan schedule so far this season. What What are the keys to tonight's game, which kicks off at five on Fox? Well, USC has been been led by Caleb Williams this season. He's the Heisman Trophy frontrunner right now. Uh, he had a really good game against Utah the last time they played. Uh, if he plays well tonight, I think the, the Heisman Trophy is almost assuredly his. Um, so they need another big game from him, just like they have pretty much, just like they've needed pretty much every other week uh, this season. But last time these two teams played, USC's defense Gave up 43 points, and Utah quarterback Cam Rising has been the only quarterback who has matched Williams' score for score this season and, and uh, one-upped him. So I think USC, they need to disrupt Rising more. He's a little hobbled, um, but they need to disrupt him more and make, make a few more stops on defense and, and get more pressure on the quarterback and force him into mistakes. I mean, is this one of the worst defensive teams that you, you've seen potentially qualify for the four-team playoff? I mean, the Trojans have an incredible offense led by Williams, but defensively, another story. Yeah, Lincoln Riley's been kind of used to this. He didn't have uh, great defenses at Oklahoma. Um, and if you, ter- if you look in terms of yards per play given up, the uh, lowest-ranked defense in terms of All right. Uh, Sam in Pasadena says, I'm an official tour guide at the Rose Bowl. Um, And Sam, let's put you on the air to make your comment. We got a a couple minutes here. So, Sam, what do you think of this as someone who takes people through the historic stadium? Yeah, the Rose Bowl, the world famous Rose Bowl, as Keith Jackson would say at at the end of the Yellow Brick Road. And it's got such a strong history, but with so many new and shiny stadiums in the area in order to stay relevant i think it was the best call from the gm to be a part of the uh 
championship rotation. So it's what we needed to do. And do you feel like with UCLA and USC joining the Big Ten season after next, that it's it's it sort of made that Pac-12 Big Ten historic matchup less relevant? Yeah, that was a sad call. That was like breaking up with your girlfriend or your wife leaving you. I didn't like that at all, but it is what it is. Um, I don't want it to happen, but it's you know that's how things happen. But as far as the stadium goes, I think in order to stay relevant, I think it was a good call to be somehow part of the college football championships. I don't know what's going to happen to them yeah. at 12. Sam, uh, just quickly, almost out of time, but I, I wonder about the people you take through the stadium. What has the greatest impact on the tour? Well, I can sum it up this way, Larry. I just recently had a tour of SoFi Stadium. When you take a tour of SoFi, you're like, wow. When you take a tour of the Rose Bowl Stadium, you're like, ah, this is amazing. (laughs) This is incredible and historic as well as wow. Sam, I see why you're a tour guide. That's great. What a what a superb distillation. Thanks so much. That's Sam in Pasadena Tour Guide at the Rose Bowl. And our thanks to the mayor of Pasadena, Victor Gordo, and to the Athletics USC football beat reporter Antonio Morales. Again, the Trojans play the University of Utah in the Pac-12 championship game, 5 o'clock this afternoon in Las Vegas at the Raiders' home Allegiant Stadium. If USC wins, they're almost certainly in uh, the four-team college football playoff. If the Trojans lose, highly unlikely. They're pretty much out uh, of the playoffs and would have to go to another bowl game. Thanks so much for joining us for Air Talk. Film Week is coming up next. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. And to be joined by critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com. Andy Klein with us. And from Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine critic Charles Solomon. First up this week, The Eternal Daughter, starring Tilda Swinton. It's written and directed by Joanna Hogg. Tim, please start us. Uh, um, a, a total of only seven actors... But eight characters in this Joanna Hogg film, a uh, very stylized film, uh, in particular because this one is sort of shaped like a ghost story. Joanna's films are very stylized anyway, but this one has this very sort of specific dyna- uh, uh, dynamic. And we have this mother and this daughter 
who show up at this uh, hotel, more or less in the middle of nowhere, where no one else seems to be. There only seems to be this clerk and this this old man who's taking care of things. And and both of them are played by Tilda Swinton, the mother and the daughter, thus the eight characters and seven actors. And we begin this movie... Um, in this setting that was once the mother's childhood home, back before the war when she was a little girl. And now it's a hotel. And now it's a hotel, and the daughter is intending to cultivate from the mother her memories of her childhood in this place so that she can write a script. She's a filmmaker. And if this is a ghost story, it's about the, the ghosts of the unconsidered past. Uh, that might might be dug up. And as we work our way through this movie, this extremely deferential daughter, she's very caring of, of her mother, she's a middle daughter, uh, begins to realize that bringing her mother to this place from her from her deep childhood uh, may evoke some, some, some ghosts of her memories that are not good. And, you know, this movie is very slow, it's very methodical, it's very moody, and you do feel like you're in a ghost story. And if there's a mystery, it's the mystery of these, these things that are... Um, but... It has a sense of, of, of dissatisfaction because if you have a movie like that, you want it at the end to sort of wrap itself up to say something. This one doesn't. There is a moment in the middle of the film where, where the daughter character has this crying drag, this really cathartic crying drag. She's just wailing uncontrollably, and her mother, you know, also Tilda Swinton, is sitting over there trying to comfort her. And when I thought about it later, I thought to myself, this doesn't happen at the end of the movie. I thought that I think that that was the moment. That was the moment that was supposed to be cathartic for all of us, but it doesn't happen at the end of the film. It's about three-quarters of the way through the film. But it was the one moment in the film that really grabbed me and held me taut to my seat. So, an interesting film, but, you know, I'm not that big of a fan of those other two Joanna Hogg movies, those the, the Souvenir, Souvenir 1, Souvenir 2, also Tilda Swinton playing her mother in those films. So, uh, it's a style of film, kind of like a ghost story, but not really. We're talking about The Eternal Daughter from filmmaker Joanna Hogg starring Tilda Swinton. Andy? I feel like I'm all out on my own on this one. I uh, Everybody I've talked to loved it. I say it's spinach, and I say to hell with it. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's really, yes, it's like a ghost story, and it's filled with all sorts of creepy animations. And there's a plot reveal at a certain point, which I guessed at literally five minutes into the film. And then I abandoned my guess because things happened that seemed to totally contradict that plot reveal. And then it happens anyway. Uh, I thought this was uh, all striving for meaning and delivering nothing other than the usual knockout performance by Swinton who really can't do much wrong. Two knockout performances. You really buy her <laughs> as the daughter and the mother. Actually, three. Three. Oh, indeed. There's that very late shot that's different. Yes, three performances. The Eternal Daughter, rated PG-13. Joanna Hogg, the writer-director. Tilda Swinton stars, and uh, it's in select theaters uh, like Lemley's Royal in West L.A. and the Look Dine-In Cinemas in Glendale. Lady Chatterley's Lover stars Emma Corrin. The film is directed by Laure de Clermont-Tonnerre. The film's written by David McGee, based, of course, on the D.H. Lawrence novel. Tim, what did you think of this? 
latest, newest version of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Well, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Yet another scandalous uh, version of D.H. Lawrence's uh, scandalous novel from the late 1920s, more or less about desire and fidelity and infidelity and, and, and passion uh, and how we define these things. It was grand, uh, banned in the United States and England. It was only published in Italy for, for quite a long time, for years and years and years. This isn't a word. Hot. Very, very hot. Glossy, filtered, gauzed, uh, mostly seething with pain and passion and desire and all of that kind of stuff. As we watch these extremely good-looking people naked and having sex just everywhere they can, they just can't stop themselves. And that's the thing that I like about this movie. It's the D.H. Lawrence yet again. It's been done a bunch of times back in 82, Silver Crystal, uh, in that uh, Just uh, Jacqueline's film. Uh, uh, there, was a, there was a series with Jolie Richardson back in 93, which is interesting because Jolie is in this movie playing a different role. She played mm. Lady Chatterley in the other role. And there's been Lady Chatterley's daughter and Lady Chatterley's cousins and Lady <laughs> just don't call all of them. Uh, uh, and, you know, and, and, and they're, it, they're all about the same thing. This is interesting because it is sort of post-Me Too, and the way that you tell this story uh, and, 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 and actually capture these, these images on film without sort of violating the sort of notions behind the sort of Me Too movement, the actors and actresses, it's very interesting. So it's very delicate in the way it does that, but it does it without abandoning the passion, the sort of raw sexuality that was the point of the D.H. Lawrence. This is sexy. It's hot. We're talking about Lady Chatterley's Lover, starring Emma Corrin, uh, who will be with our John Horn later this hour in conversation about the film. Laura de Clement-Tonnerre is the director of the film. It's rated R, given Tim's description. That's no surprise. Mm-hmm. And it's streaming on Netflix. EO is uh, set in Poland and Italy. The drama is directed by Jerzy Skolomowski, who co-wrote the film. Andy, what do you think of EO? Uh, EO is interesting. It's it's kind of vaguely a remake of uh, Robert Brasson's classic, oh, has, I'm not going to pronounce this right, Oh, Hazard Balthazar, um, which was... Life through the POV of a donkey. And in this one, Eo is the donkey, and we see him uh, get ripped away from the circus. Animal activists have shut down the circus, and he's torn away from the woman he doesn't act with. It's not that kind of act. It's not like Lady Chatterley's lover. Um, uh, that, you know, that loves him and he loves her. And he's just shunted from place to place and adventure to adventure and sees all sorts of really horrible behavior on the, you know, by humans. Uh, it's relatively engaging given that you've got a donkey as the lead. I mean, it's not the most expressive kind of face, but uh, Skolomowski does keep you involved with that donkey and what it's experiencing. So I thought it was uh, uh, kind of an accomplishment, and it does not overstay its welcome, let me put it that way. And then Isabel Huppert shows up for five minutes, and that's the end of the film. EO, Tim. Uh, to me, this film is interesting in that we have this donkey that's more or less on a walkabout after he leaves the, the, the circus. And he, the donkey is minding its own business. And people keep messing with this donkey. 
Uh, if, if if people would just leave the donkey alone, the donkey would be fine. But he finds himself his 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 um, agency to the extent that the donkey has any agency always usurped by these people, even the ones that love him and want to help him and and engage him kindly. He, the donkey didn't ask for any of that. Leave the donkey alone. You know there are lots of animals that ask us to see the world through the through the eyes of the Benji. All those Benji movies, same thing. Uh, Disney every Sunday, every Sunday a Disney movie with an animal, and we were meant to. So it's clever. But not particularly original. Uh, and, and, and while I appreciate it, I, I think that what we should take away from it is leave the donkeys at all alone. Just leave them alone. They don't need your help. EO is the film, uh, the film again from Jerzy Skolomowski. It's unrated. Uh, the film's in Polish with English subtitles. You can see it at the Alamo Draft House, downtown L.A., and multiple Lemley locations. EO again is unrated. The documentary Killing Me Softly with His Songs uh, tells us about the life and work of composer Charles Fox, who did many of the popular television theme songs back in the 1970s. Of course, uh, the hit song Killing Me Softly with His Song. Uh, The film was directed by Danny Gold. Charles. Well, I will confess that as someone who spends most of his time listening to obscure Baroque operas, I really wasn't aware of Charles Fox's work, and I feel I'm quite familiar with it now thanks to this absolutely delightful film. Uh, Fox is in his 80s. He's still clearly sharp as a tack. You see him performing recently in Cuba with some musician friends. You see him performing in Paris at a tiny jazz club with uh, Alexandre Desplat, among others, uh, reminiscing so touchingly about um, his piano teacher, uh, again, it's a wonderful introduction to this artist, his music, his work. My only criticism would be that they tend to keep songs in their entirety when they're performed. So sometimes it feels like it's not sure if it wants to be a concert film or a documentary, but an absolutely delightful film, beautifully made and produced and warm and charming and Uh, I I was just delighted with it. His hit songs include, in addition to Killing Me Softly, I Got a Name, which was a hit for Jim Croce, Ready to Take a Chance Again. And then the themes from Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, (laughs) The Love Boat, Wonder Woman, very prolific composer, Mm. Charles Yes, to tell the truth. Oh, my gosh. uh, The Wide World of Sports. And then he does a duet of that song with Jim Croce's son, and they talk about relations with their fathers and, and what the song meant. And it's, again, a very genuine, uh, touching moment. Killing Me Softly with his songs. The documentary is unrated. It's at Lemley's Town Center in Encino. Also out this week is Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power, a documentary from Sam Pollard and Gita Gambier. Tim? Well, this is just wonderful, wonderful uh, archival footage from the period. Never before seen uh, much of this footage. Uh, Often of people, names that we don't often associate uh, with this movement, too. Lowndes County, Alabama, um, is is one of the counties that the Selma to Montgomery March would travel through. Indeed, it's the largest county that that march would travel through. It was in an 80% black county. It was not a single registered black voter. 
at all. This is in 1960. This is in 1960, 1965. It's when when they actually marched. So we're across the 60s. Um, so so the black folks um, begin what they call the Lowndes County Freedom Organization (LCFO) uh, that they perform that they uh, form to change this situation and try to register black folks to vote. They still could make no headway because even when they could register black folks to vote, um, all kinds of things were done by the Democratic Party to stop those black folks from taking. So they decided to form their own party, the Black Panther Party. Now, I know we think of the Black Panther Party, we think of the 1966 yeah. Black Oakland. Oakland, all of that, Bobby Seale, Hue, Huey Newton, all of that. Huey and Bobby asked permission from this Black Panther, this political party, to use that emblem in the name in the party that they began in, in, in Oakland. So that emblem is the same, that Black Panther, that's the same emblem. But this was, a, this was a political party. This was the party that was on the ballot. Black folks were able to go to the polls and vote for candidates running in the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was never a political party in that way. That's the distinction here. I've never heard it. Had you heard this story, Tim? Yeah, well, yeah, heard? because I'm from St. Louis and Missouri oh, and SNCC okay, and, yeah. and all that kind of SNCC was, was, was uh, Stokely Carmichael was basically uh, kind of ridiculously young Stokely Carmichael in this film. I think he's 19. Uh, in this film was, was, was the person who suggested the beginning of this party. Um, and this is a very interesting film in that much of it, while we see Martin Luther King and all of those folks from the Southern Leadership Council, we see all of these young, young folks from SNCC, many of whom are still alive and thus in this film because they were sometimes a generation younger than the folks in Martin's party, you know, John Lewis's, uh, and, and they, Ella Taylor, folks like that. And they talk about what they did. Ultimately, they were able to get the first black sheriff elected in this county in 1970. It's a very powerful film, particularly, again, all kinds of archival footage that I have just never before seen. We're talking about the documentary Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power. Sam Pollard and Gita Gambier are the filmmakers. The movie is unrated, and the documentary is at Lemley's Monica Town Center in Santa Monica. Coming up, we'll hear about another documentary, this time from acclaimed filmmaker Laura Poitras. Uh, it's about artist Nan Golden. We'll also hear about Avon Evangelion, a 3.0 plus 1.01, Thrice Upon a Time. I just love these titles of the Japanese <laughs> anime. No one else titles movies well, like again, this. It was spoofed in Martian successor Nadesico. Of course it was. Charles will tell us all about it when we continue on Film Week in just a moment. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Coming up a little bit later this hour, our John Horn talks with actor Emma Corrin about the new film Lady Chatterley's Lover. Corrin is the star of that Netflix streaming film. But we continue with our critics, Tim Cogshell, Andy Klein, and Charles Solomon. We'll hear next about All the Beauty and the Bloodshed from documentarian Laura Poitras. Uh, this follows the life of artist Nan Golden. Andy, please tell us about All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Uh, well, this film seems to be split between two main purposes. It it really is a biography of Dan Gold. And at the same time, it's built around her campaign against the Sackler family, who were the villains behind the opioid crisis and who were art uh, philanthropists with galleries in 
every museum in the world practically. And she feels like their names have to be taken down because these evil people were responsible out of sheer greed for a trillion dollar crisis that's killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, the film goes back and forth between that current crusade and the story of her life and how she grew up to be an artist uh, and became an AIDS activist, which felt sort of out of chronological order a little bit. But she's a fascinating character and the issues are great. Um, I thought it was just an edge too long. It's just over two hours and I think it could have been tightened up. But she's uh, she's worth knowing about, and there is sort of a, a a relative kind of triumph over the Sacklers, though it's not really justice. All the beauty mm. and the bloodshed, Tim. Yeah, two films, right? Uh, Nan Golden, you know, sort of iconoclastic uh, culture photographer, uh, worked as a sex worker, worked as a, a t- all of this very interesting. Nan Golden's life, extremely interesting. One of the things that happened to her is that she got hooked on. Uh, these opioids, uh, and, uh, and and it caused her a, a great deal of distress. And, and and I suppose that that story would would be a portion of a story of a film about her, because there should be a film about her. And then you have the Sackler family and all that they've done with the uh, with the art galleries and their name on these art galleries. And all of this was about get, literally getting their name off of these galleries. Um, and and that's a story too, uh, which we've seen and we know. But. Except for she got hooked on opioids and, and led this crusade. Uh, these, these two things don't seem to go together for me uh, too terribly much. Uh, and I think that what I really need here are two different films. And each of these films would perhaps refer to one another, but I just think these are two different movies. And this has one movie. It's just two incomplete movies. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is unrated. It's at the AMC Sunset in West Hollywood. Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.01, Thrice Upon a Time, the fourth and final installment of the rebuild of Evangelion Films. Charles? Well, this is the culmination of more than 25 years of filmmaking and storytelling and one of the real watershed pieces of Japanese animation. In 1995, Anu created his TV series, Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, it was enormously influential. It was a mixture of Jewish and Christian mysticism and symbology and robot battles and speculation about the future evolution of humanity. When it ended, it was so popular, more than 10% of the TVs in Japan were tuned to that final episode. But it didn't have an ending. And Hideaki Anno recut the last episodes. He made them into a feature. Then he did a second feature. None of it brought the studio to a conclusion. The, sorry, the the story to a conclusion. Then in 2002, he announced he was doing this four-feature rebuild of the story that would be not restricted by technology or budgets or anything else he had had to deal with. And this is the final one, and it brings the story of the psychic um, cyborg pilot. Shinji Ikari to its conclusion he finally has found an ending it's a very powerful film it's a very well-made film the problem is if you haven't seen the first three and probably the tv series it's not going to make a hell of a lot of sense but it this is again a, a watershed work in Japanese animation it's influenced any number of films it's been spoofed it's been uh, parodied Anno is a really interesting filmmaker 
So it's an important work, but you need to do your homework before you go. If you saw the three previous rebuild films, would that set you up for this? Yes, although it, it again takes the story in a completely new direction. The first one is basically the first six episodes of the TV series. Two and three kind of swing in a new direction, and this is something nobody saw coming, but it's a satisfactory ending to that story after more than 25 years. Do you know how this final film was done in Japan so far? Oh, it was, a, it was the number two film in Japan last year. It made over $92 million despite COVID restrictions. So um, it was just at the last minute it was beaten out by uh, the Jujutsu Kaisen, uh, Kaisen movie. Um, all, all four of the top box office hits in Japan last year were animated. Wow. Is that, is that unprecedented, do you know? Uh, it's There are usually a couple in the top group, but then... Uh, up until the last couple of years, that's also been the case in this country, that, you know, the Pixar and Disney films have led the box office. We're talking about Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.01, Thrice Upon a Time, fourth final installment of the rebuild of Evangelion films. Uh, again, uh, it's directed by Hideaki Anno. Uh, the uh, film uh, also uh, is unrated. It's in Japanese with English subtitles, and you can see it at uh, the Regal and AMC Theaters select locations on December 6th. December 8th and December 11th. That's next Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. The film's spoiler alert is a dramatic comedy starring Jim Parsons and Ben Aldrich. Michael Showalter is the director. Tim? Yeah, yeah. Based on a book by a fellow named Michael Osiello, who wrote a book about his relate, who's a, a, a writer, particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s for TV Guide, writing about all of the wonderful television shows that we were watching during that period, and his boyfriend, Kit Cowan. Uh, spoiler alert, the hero dies in the end. Indeed, this is a story uh, about the... the um, uh, King of all maladies, uh, taking his his uh, longtime um, uh, husband from him eventually. Uh, these these films come in a few different flavors. Uh, the first one is is where you know we're going to face all this with, with, with great humor and jokes and uh, jokes written to the purpose and uh, this is meant to alleviate the suffering and then you know the the character dies in the end. The second is everything is horrible, uh, and uh, and uh, this, that's the, the nature of what this is. And then there's the third kind, uh, which reaches for something true. Uh, for humor without jokes, uh, for tragedy without horror. Uh, and uh, every, every now and again, a, a film achieves that. This is one that achieves that. Um, uh, I, I, I like the way the story is sort of crafted in that um, you have all of these things, but you never feel like you're being drug uh, in, 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 into a hole. Uh, yet you never feel like we're going to dance and tap dance our way through this horrible cancer diagnosis. Um, so I, I appreciate that about this show. Michael Showalter did The Big Sick. Uh, yeah. a, a couple of years ago. So he has a sort of sensibility for these sorts of things. I deeply appreciated this, uh, partic particularly its third act. The film doesn't end with the death that we know will happen. There's another act after that. And I deeply appreciate that about this film. Spoiler alert, the film starring Jim Parsons and Ben Aldrich, Michael Showalter, directed. The adaptation of the book, Spoiler Alert, was done by David Marshall Grant and Dan Savage. It's rated PG-13 in select theaters for a week and then goes into wide release next Friday. The animated Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Roderick Rules, is directed by Luke Cormican. Uh, Charles, what'd you think? Well, the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series is a very popular set of 
uh, novels aimed at adolescents several years ago. Big, big sellers. You know, I know a lot of people whose kids were reading them. Uh, they've been filmed in live action about 12 years ago. Now this feels like we're trying to revive the franchise by doing them in animation that's based on the author's drawings, which are little more than stick figures. So they're not particularly attractive to look at. They don't allow for much expression in the animation. Um, the the uh, Greg, the title kid, doesn't even have eyebrows, so it's hard to give him anything that will read as an expression. Um it's a live-action situation. He and his big brother get in trouble, and although his big brother is mean and you know is busy with his rock band, they end up bonding, which I think a lot of people who have mean older siblings aren't going to buy. But there's there's no reason to animate it. The, you could just rewatch the live-action film uh, and probably get a better feel for what this story is talking about. Um, than than this. This is the second one in a series. I assume they're going to do them all. But I don't see why. What What are the reasons, Charles, that they would limit the animation? Is that just simply a cost factor, or stylistically, is there some reason they would do I that? I suspect it's a mixture of both. That sort of the gimmick is, yeah, he did these simple little, again, almost stick figure drawings to illustrate the original books. So we can put those on the screen. But again, they're not terribly animatable. They're not expressive. Yes, you can move a stick figure, but can you make a stick figure act convincingly in animation? And the answer seems to be not in this case. Well, and and then would seem to put all the more pressure on the voice talent to be able to bring to the stick figure what the drawing can't. Yeah. And as a result, the film is very, very talky. Um, Again, Richard Armour years ago spoofed King Lear and said that Gloucester's fate is after they put his his eyes out, they talk his ears off. (laughs) And that's what they seem to be doing here. These characters just never shut up. (laughs) Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Roderick Rules, is the animated comedic drama. It's streaming on Disney+. Plus. Luke Cormican, the director, uh, the screenplay by Kathleen Shugru. Uh, It's rated PG. The action comedy romance Four Samosas is set in the little Indian neighborhood, Artesia. Uh, the film was written and directed by Ravi Kapoor. Uh, Andy, what did you think of Four Samosas? Uh, this is a, a, a very low budget, uh, obviously labor of love film. Uh, not very interestingly shot, but incredibly likable. I mean, it's just an amiable entertainment, and it gives us a view of sort of misfit kids within that community, which we never see represented on screen. Uh, it is reasonably funny, uh, a little underpowered, but uh, they mix it up and they keep it short, and like I say, it's awfully likable. And do you get a real sense of place? Oh. Do you feel like you're really in Little India, in, in Artesia? Yes. I mean, basically all the characters are Indian American. Uh, it, I, I've left the plot out. They pull, the kids pull a heist against a rich store owner who one of them has a grudge against, and they completely screw it up. It's, it's a comedy of errors that way. And uh, yes, it does give you a sense of that community, which I've only been to a couple times to see Bollywood movies. Uh, and uh, it, but you know, to me, it was 
valuable as a representative of something of that area of L.A. that essentially never shows up in movies. We're talking about the film Four Samosas. It's an action romantic comedy from writer-director Ravi Kapoor. It's rated PG-13, shot on location in Little India. The film stars Vank Pontula, uh, Sunal Shah, and Sharmita Bhattacharya. Uh, and uh, the film is available to be seen at Lemley's NoHo in North Hollywood, at the Harkins Theater Cerritos, and available for on-demand viewing for Samosas. And, uh, you know, this, this reminds me all about how many great communities there are in Southern California to set films. And I feel like so many of these communities, Tim, are really underutilized for movies. Oh, absolutely, uh, uh, Koreatown for sure. Uh, uh, but even out here in the in, in the valley, uh, some of the, some of the Asian communities not nearly seen enough uh, in, in in cinema. Every now and again, we'll get a glimpse of, of some of the Latinx communities, Boyle Heights, and places like that, but not nearly as it ought to be. Uh, the TV series Bosch uh, has done a great job of getting out on locations throughout Southern California to giving a real sense of place. But just seems like there's so many chances for movies to really do this and to immerse us uh, in into those locations. So um, after hearing about Four Samosas, it would be great to see that mm. uh, with, with more communities. When we come back, we'll continue with our critics and hear about the South Korean action film Hunt uh, from uh, director Lee Jong-jai. Also, we'll hear about the quintessential quintuplets movie, which is another Japanese animated film this week. We're keeping Charles Solomon busy. <laughs> <laughs> and Christmas with the Campbells, uh, which is uh, a brand new uh, film that's streaming on AMC+. Those and more movies are coming up on Film Week on KPCC with our critics Charles Solomon, Andy Klein, and Tim Cogshell. Also coming up are John Horn in conversation with the star of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which is streaming on Netflix. Emma Corrin will be with John Horn. It's Film Week on KPCC. It's Film Week on KPCC. In just a few minutes, our John Horn talks with actor Emma Corrin, who stars in the latest version of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which is streaming on Netflix. Right now, though, we continue with the theatrical films of the week from South Korea, the action thriller Hunt. Andy, please tell us about it. Uh, this is the directorial debut of the star of uh, Squid Game. And he certainly surrounded himself with seasoned professionals because this is a massive action film with massive, massive shoot 'em up episodes. I mean, the body count in this film is in at least the hundreds, if not the thousands. It's about political intrigue in Korea in the 80s. And these two guys who are both part of the Korean CIA who are rivals. And there's a mole within the organization, and maybe it's one of them, and they're sort of friends, and they're sort of like each investigating each other, a bit like The Departed that way. Um, the problem with the film, it's fast moving. It really, if you're just in the mood for 
car chases and shoot em outs, it's great. The problem is that the political background is not very well explained. And from the little research I was able to do after seeing it, it really is a fantasy of events that couldn't possibly have happened. Uh, just taking off very slightly from what the actual political situation in South Korea was in that period. But it moves real fast. It's over two hours, and I did not resent that at all. Hunt is the film uh, Korean uh, action thriller, Tim. I'll say action thriller. You remember that big shootout scene in Heat, Michael Mann's Heat? Oh, yeah. That happens, that happens four times. In the, that scale happens four times in this movie. It opens with one of those. Uh, and then it does it again and again and again, espionage and all of this kind of stuff. And it is long and it is dense. I happen to have been in the Air Force in the early 1980s, and these events are seen. It was it was the May 18th democratization movement, which is a big deal. But we forget the guy who was president uh, of of South Korea. He was not a democratically elected president back then, and he was kind of a tyrant. And the Koreans sort of put up with it because you know the guy in North Korea was even scarier. The guy's the guy's dad. And then there was uh, uh, the defection of this North Korean pilot, which was a big deal. It put Everybody uh, in in the South Pacific on alert because we didn't know if this guy was 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 coming in, and it was it was a whole thing happened in the 1980s, and there was a, a terrorist attack at Aung San. All of these things were huge events at, during that period. If you know all of that stuff, this movie is way, way, way better. It's only slightly referencing these things, but it drags it all into the real world. So it's not just shootouts. This is all stuff that literally matters right now in Korea, which is why this movie is so popular. Well, there. it sounds like quite a big budget film. Also, if you're staging all those scenes like that, that's it's expensive. Oh, yeah, but the, the, the Korean filmmaking industry is actually quite huge. And, and this is his first film. And what's funny is most Americans are thinking, well, who is this guy? You've seen this guy. <laughs> Almost everybody's seen Squid Game. Uh, he's a huge, huge star in Korea and a bigger star all over the world now. The film is Hunt. Uh, the film is unrated in Korean with English subtitles. It's at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema, downtown Los Angeles, uh, also at other select locations, available on digital and on demand as well. Hunt. The quintessential quintuplets movie is a Japanese animated comedy. The film is directed by Masato Jinbo. Charles. Well, this is an example of a genre of anime that is the harem comedy. You have a nice, if somewhat undistinguished guy who is somehow surrounded by all these adorable girls who are after them. In this case, Futaro is the tutor to five identical sisters. Think of the Patty Duke show raised yeah. exponentially. <laughs> Uh, they're, they walk all, alike, they talk alike. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the question is, you can only tell them apart if you really love them. You know, their parents can and Futaro can, but everybody else, they can impersonate each other. Uh, they're all after him, who is a fellow high school student and their tutor. The show's been running for two years on Crunchyroll and is quite popular. And now this movie kind of wraps everything up and... All five are after him. It's the final high school cultural festival. And the cultural festival is the high point of a high school year in every school anime. And so he has to decide at the end of it which one, you know, he will end up with romantically. And so they replay a lot of things, almost um, Groundhog Day style, where from each 
each quintuplet's point of view. Each one kisses him once, and then he finally has to decide which one he'll end up with, uh, which I'm not going to say, because if you haven't been following the show, you may find them a little hard to tell apart. You don't know them well enough. Um, it's very silly. It's lots of fun. The, again, the show has been quite popular. If you just want you know, a giggle and this kind of, of romantic contretemps, uh, you'll have fun with it. It felt a little long to me, though. The quintessential quintuplets movie directed by Masato Jinbo. The film's unrated in Japanese with English subtitles also available in dubbed versions, and it's in wide release. The romantic comedy Christmas with the Campbells stars Brittany Snow and Justin Long. The film directed by Claire Niederprum and written by Barbara Kimlicka, Vince Vaughn, and Dan Lagana. Andy, what do you think of Christmas with the Campbells? Oi, is what I thought. Um, <laughs> That's I, Hanukkah with the Campbells. <laughs> not a Hanukkah film. Uh, I, I can picture the, the pitch meeting for this, which was, let's make something that seems like a Hallmark movie, but we'll fill it with sex jokes. And it's not a great combination. It's a very by-the-numbers romantic comedy of girl and her boyfriend who are living together are supposed to stay with his parents in Ketchum uh, in the frozen north. And the day before they're supposed to go, he tells her he's breaking up with her after three years. And he's going on a different trip to New York. So she goes to visit and spend Christmas with his parents. Of course, he has a handsome cousin who's visiting, played by Justin Long, who's generally kind of uh, automatically charming, and here seems kind of miscast because he's doing uh, a Western accent of some kind, and he seems uncomfortable with it. But meanwhile, the you know the parents just all they talk about is how much they fornicate. I mean, it really is non-stop sexual references and i don't you know i have a very high tolerance for smut (laughs) critics need that don't they andy (laughs) yes yes we do i look forward to lady chatterley's letter sorry i missed it uh but this just felt so out of sorts and and like I say, everything else about it is this utterly by-the-numbers romantic comedy. I mean, you can predict everything that's going to happen. Christmas with the Campbells is unrated. The romantic comedy is at Lemley's NoHo in North Hollywood, and it's streaming as well on the AMC Plus streaming service. Coming up next on Film Week, our John Horn is in conversation with the star of Lady Chatterley's Lover, Emma Corrin, be talking with John in just a moment. Joining us this week are critics Tim Cogshell, Charles Solomon, and Andy Klein. We have more to come on Film Week in just a few minutes and remind you if you joined us late, you can listen to the full hour of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts at kpcc.org or by downloading the KPCC app. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. 
Earlier this hour, you heard what Tim Cogshell had to say about the latest version of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Uh, nearly a century ago, D.H. Lawrence published that novel, a story about a sexual relationship between a working-class man and an upper-class woman. It was immediately censored. In fact, uh, Chatterley was banned as obscene in the United States. A new movie adaptation reminds us why the 1928 novel was considered so subversive. Emma Corrin plays Lady Chatterley, also starred as Princess Diana in the fourth season of The Crown. Our John Horn talked with Corrin at the Telluride Film Festival. I did some research before you came in about the history of censorship and yeah. Lady Chatterley, and it is beyond belief. But I'm going to quote a U.S. senator. His name is Reed Smoot. He was a... <laughs> what a name. Yeah, he was a member of the Mormon Church, Church of Latter-day Saints. They which loved it. didn't have a very forward-thinking attitude about sex or women. Here's what he said. I've not taken 10 minutes on Lady Chatterley's Lover outside of looking at its opening pages. It is most damnable. It is written by a man with a diseased mind and a soul so black that he would obscure even the darkness of hell. Wow. And it's worth noting that this book was banned until 1960 in yeah. the UK. There's, I think there's two reasons why it was banned, but I'm curious what your thoughts are about why it was banned. I mean, I think it was banned because of the um, explicit sex in the book and the way that it celebrated and examined female pleasure, which is something that I think is just becoming a discourse now that we're talking about and certainly hasn't really been depicted on screen before. Also, I think his language is very modern. The words he uses around like sex and it's very modern. I think it's, I think uh, my opinion is if this book came out now, people would be talking about it. Right. I think you're right. Yeah. I want to ask about making a period story contemporary because it isn't. But I think there's a way in which you and the actors be act and the way you speak that feels very modern. And there's something about the first shot of you in terms of your hair that feels very contemporary. And this is still a period film, but was that something that was even discussed about how this is actually just as modern a story as any story is totally. told today? Okay, yeah. how did that come about? What were the conversations? I think when we f I first met Laura, our director, we sat down and thought about why are we making another one? And since we are, then like, how do we make it different and why do we want to make it different? And I think that there's a way that law describes the film and the book, which is that it's timely and also timeless. And I think that's what we wanted to capture. And I think Emma Fry really did that with the costumes as well. A lot of the dresses were, they have a nod to the period, but most of them you can buy online. I think people who don't know the book that well would assume that part of what Lady Chatterley's motivation is in having an affair is that her husband is injured in the war, World War I, and is rendered impotent, that he is paralyzed mm -hmm. from the waist down. But that's not. This, her, I'm not going to say her issues, her desires precede that greatly. Yeah. Um, and I noticed in watching the film, because I probably watch films differently than most people, the first three instances where your character is having sex, she initiates the contact every time. Yeah. She's the first to move. She's the first to put mm -hmm. out her hand or show somebody else where they should yeah. put their hand. She is the initiator. Initiator. She she is not only has a libido. She's not only sex positive, but she wants to get things going. Yeah, Connie. It's totally fine, and of course justified that Connie wants a sex life. She wants to have sex. It's a huge part of 
and intimacy it's a huge part of a relationship between two people and and not only that but there's also this like other side to it is when she starts having sex with Oliver there is a part of her that still isn't allowing herself to fully experience it and that's something that we talked about with the journey of her sexuality during the film that she feels guilty or that she feels that she's never she, can't she knows she wants to have sex and that she has a desire to and sh- she has as you say that like she longs for physical contact but I think for her, she's never truly been able to access her own pleasure. Maybe she's, I think we talked about she's never been with anyone who has really asked her what she wanted or or made her stay in her body. And I think especially with her relationship with Clifford is probably, he makes her feel ashamed of wanting those things, as she says in the film. And so we talked about how when she first has sex with Mellors for the first few times, she's sort of not, she's there, she initiates it, she wants it, but during it, she's elsewhere. Right. And then that scene where they're both in the woods and finally he's like, look at me, engage with me. We're in this together. You don't have to disappear. You're here. It's one thing to write a novel about a character who has desire Mm -hmm. and is very sex positive. It's another thing to write a screenplay about that. And it's quite another thing to perform that. So in terms of creating, I don't know if you want to call it safe place. I don't, that seems not quite the right word, but a place where you can and your co-star can feel that they are being faithful to the story and they have what they need as performers and people to feel safe. How do you go about creating that? And what are the conversations that were important to you? I mean, it really was all the intimacy coordinator, um, Ita O'Brien, who worked on Normal People. And she has sort of been at the um, forefront of the movement of why intimacy coordinators are so essential. And this is my first time doing this amount of nudity and this this many sex scenes in one project if, if ever and um <laughs> and I was so blown away by how much I relied on and felt so grateful for her involvement and I sort of the way I describe it is like it's almost as sh- she approached it the same way as you would like a stunt you know you're gonna move here this yeah. person's hand is gonna be there exactly and then if you're, you're choreographing a fight you don't just say guys go for it have a good time hope you feel safe no you break it down bit by bit because you know that they're more often than not things would go wrong and it's exactly the same thing and there are so many ways in that then in when you're doing sex scenes that things could go wrong that people everyone has their own relationship with their body and what they feel comfortable with or don't feel comfortable with and it's really important to honor that and to recognize it and to talk about it and yeah, she broke it down beat by beat and we sort of said, you know, I'm you can touch me here and here, but absolutely not here. And once we had those things settled, then yeah, walk through it beat by beat and so we all knew how all the scenes would go. So there were no surprises and everyone was comfortable. And also once those things were in place, it's such a blessing because you can have freedom within it. D.H. Lawrence's book is still banned because of, in some places, or it's just be, been recently unbanned. It's still banned in elementary schools in the States because of what it has to say about sex. And let's just say the United States is not alone in how it views sex compared to violence. And it's Mm -hmm. something that is a huge issue in films, that movies that have very loving and accurate and nonviolent depictions of sex are labeled NC-17. They're not, Mm -hmm. you're not allowed to see it unless you're an adult over a certain age, but you can kill how many thousands of people you want. Yeah, you can kill in a Marvel movie and you get PG-13. So knowing that's the circumstances, how does this movie get to an audience? I mean, I would love my kids. They're 22 and 18. Mm. I I think this is a movie that 
16-year-old yeah, girls need to see. It's interesting. I was in a film seminar earlier, and it was so nice. So um, these students from the AFI, and someone said, I was... I just was watching it and wishing I'd seen it when I was 16. And I think that's also something I felt when I read the script was like, I've never seen this. And God, I feel like this is stuff I'm still discovering about myself because w it's never been a discourse in society. It's never been something I've been able to see. We were talking just before we started rolling about watching yourself on screen with an audience, <laughs> watching yourself on screen with an audience in which you are without any clothes, <laughs> watching yourself with an audience where you're on screen without any clothes having sex yeah how does that play out for you and is it difficult it was difficult the first time I watched the film I was um it was just on my laptop I was set in a cut and I was with two friends um in New York and I drank a hell of a lot of whiskey and then watched it and actually it was really nice because they loved it and I was so worried that they would find it weird they were so worried they would find it weird but actually they said they didn't at all so I, w I was comforted by that and it was really lovely to watch it can you identify what you took away from this movie going and how it might change you going forward Honestly, I think I've learned a lot from her and from the story about, I don't know, my own journey with sexuality, how I view it in general and how it should be depicted. And also, I've got to say that that dancing in the rain scene, I've never done anything that terrifying and that exhilarating. And if I, I, I've never had that feeling before. We and should say you're dancing in the rain without a stitch of clothing on. Without a stitch of clothing on in the middle of a valley in Wales. And we could, didn't rehearse that because we decided that we wanted the spontaneity of it and we both felt comfortable with that. So we just went for it and it was our first, second week of filming and it was mind blowing and I loved every minute of it and rush, a rush of feeling. That's our John Horn talking with actor Emma Corrin who stars in the new adaptation of Lady Chatterley's Lover. It's streaming on Netflix. For our Film Week critics, I'm Larry Mantel. From all of us, have a wonderful weekend. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there.